So, keeping it valid, episode 10. Uh, the first one we're doing in English. My name is Nimrod Lucas. With me, Dan Klarman. Hi there. Josh Mintz. Hey, what's up? And uh, we're going to talk about the ideas that connect mathematics, physics, science, and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. All the stuff we love. <laughs> Except for me, because I'm like a C-average for the entirety of my life. Yeah, uh, you want to introduce yourselves <laughs> a little bit? Uh, Fake it till you make it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Dan from Israel. I have a master's in physics, a black belt in Jiu-Jitsu, and I'm a partner in a management consulting firm. I'm Josh. I'm originally from London, but I've been living here with you guys in Israel for like the last decade. Not like with us, but no, one can only hope. Amongst right? us. Yeah. Amongst in you, the same country. Enough. Amongst the natives. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like I said, I'm a historic C student with nothing more than a BA in humanities. But uh, Jiu-Jitsu brown belt. I'm a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu brown belt. And I also I work also in management consultancy. Unfortunately, not with Dan. Again, one can only hope. You make do way more money. As a result, a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of statistics and financial modeling. And I've, I've developed a love for risk modeling and risk analysis over that. Nice. We can talk a bit about that later. Not a risk-averse guy. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Nimrod Lucas. Uh, I'm Israeli too. Uh, friends with Dan for the past 33 years give or take yep um, we grew up together I'm a mechanical engineer also a jiu-jitsu black belt under Gidon Zagas the Israeli branch of uh, Ricardo de la Hiva's jiu-jitsu this is our 10th episode yay of uh, well, in Hebrew, we call this podcast Shomrimet Zamiti, which is the literal translation of keeping it real, but it's meaningless in Hebrew. So we thought to term the, the English name keeping it valid because it will keep the twist in the name. Strangely, translating an idiom directly from English to Hebrew and then directly back into English just gives you the same idiom as you began <laughs> with, with none of the irony. <laughs> uh, just uh, keep a lid on it. <laughs> So let's start talking. Okay. Um, I thought I thought we'd give a, a we can't we can't uh, summarize all the episodes we did in Hebrew, but we can give like a short a highlight or, or the main gist of the main idea uh, of what we've discussed. And in my opinion, it all starts with repeatability, because well, time flows one way only. Uh, Dan can probably give a couple of. Uh, of points about that or maybe not but well they there is indication it might be also running on the on the other way around too at the same time but we are on the path that goes that way yeah so but if it's running in two directions at once when you say at the same time what is the time that it's happening at at the same time great question (laughs) (laughs) but yeah we go forward simultaneously yet separately we'll go forward yeah Basically, things happen once. Everything that you can think about happens once, unless we're talking about the time that you're thinking about it. I mean, the things themselves, physical reality, occurs one time. Any process or, or any action or any reaction we can observe is singular. But, uh, but when we start thinking about things, our thought filters them and patterns them and that's when we can start 
thinking about general things happening. So I can think about a simple pendulum. Uh, what do pendulums do? Swing. Swing. Swinging from side to side. And if I took a real pendulum, each swipe would be singular. But when we think about it, or when we try to describe it mathematically, that's when we start getting a general case. And general cases are, are very interesting because although they are not reality, they, they inherently have less information than a real case. A general case is something that we can, something we can predict. So the minute we have things we can predict, we can start preparing for them. Now, predicting for pendulum swipes is not very interesting, but predicting things that can happen, for example, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is very interesting. So the difference between saying, I'm holding somebody between my legs right now in a position called God, uh, and trying to describe the, the um, infinite number of parameters which affect this situation is useless. But if you practice Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for a while, you can say to somebody else, well, when one holds someone else in a guard, you can do such and such. And that statement will probably be true for many practical purposes. See, see um, when we can generalize a general case from the, from the individual singular events, uh, we create a model. And the model is something uh, very useful for us because we can use it uh, both for discussion and for thinking about it and for deciding uh, what to do. In other areas, we can use it to decide how to build stuff and do stuff. But uh, for us, uh, uh, for what we do when we spar, it's usually a good way to map our options. We can create a map that we can use to realize uh, where we are and where we want to go, either we do it mentally and consciously, and perhaps even this modeling helps us uh, to do this uh, unconsciously somehow. Yeah, yeah I think. Yeah, go ahead. I think for a lot of people who are training jujitsu, especially, there's this overwhelming sense of too many directions that are possibilities from every place where I am. And this model, whilst for guys like you who are seasoned black belts, is almost conceptual and ingrained within you. For guys like me, I mean, I'm like, yes, you said I'm a brown belt, but <laughs> I'm like, honestly, I could, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm a bit better than a blue belt, but not like one of the good blue belts, like one of the okay blue belts, I'm consistently better than. So I, for me, I think you should all get black belts and get it over with. Yeah, so. No, I, I think that. <laughs> but, but for me, this model can be a very literal thing. And for people who are earlier in their journey, it can be even more literal. I mean, you can create flowcharts on the basis of this. You can use it as a very literal training aid in a way to guide your own progress in of course brazilian jiu-jitsu but in almost anything you you do so so two things first of all uh, uh, that's exactly what I, what I wanted to ask you to say because we were talking about that the other day right about what's good for beginners to train and how how we'd like to how we remember our first days as beginners and how we could make it easier for beginners today because we have good modeling of situations right uh, that was the gist of it. Second thing was that you said you felt a bit better than blue belts, and that's some blue belts. That's great for you because <laughs> I feel that I, when I got my black belt, I was finally slightly better than most white belts. <laughs> so, 
You're already better than I was there. I'm a lot bigger than you, so I have a natural <laughs> advantage there. You're taller, that's true. Uh, uh, one thing that we talked about is also that this perception of, uh, of the state, okay, the state that, let's say, our sparring uh, is in, uh, and the definition we use, literally or not literally, they also morph over time. Because when you say God to a beginner, is something very... Uh, has to do a lot with the shape of things, of, the, of, the, of the, how things are spread in space. But that morphs, or rather isomorphs, because it's a different way of describing the same thing. When you say God to someone who's very seasoned, the black belt, it's something that has to do a lot, lot more regarding feeling. Okay, he knows he's in God that he can't be passed. That's if you can't be passed, then you are in God, for that, example. That, that's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting um, observation, because I think uh, when you talk about tournaments and points and stuff like that, the, the threshold of God is something that had to change over the years, right? Uh, yeah. When, when Jiu-Jitsu started, when MMA became popular, when people didn't exactly know what was going on, then first of all, the rules were different, but secondly people's perception was very, very different. And today, uh, a god can be something which, it, like all these uh, weird gods we get, uh, donkey god, right, worm god, all this crazy stuff. It, it Like, uh, even just 10 years ago, nobody would have accepted this as, a, as even an option. People would say, no, and, and here you lose. And today, we, we probably think about it in a much different way with much higher resolution. Absolutely. I mean, if we take the, the gold standard currently of the rule set of the International Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation, the guard ends after not after somebody has passed his opponent's legs or passed his opponent's hips, but it's until they've passed them and gained positional control from the top mm -hmm. and consolidated it for... If you're Brazilian in the world championships, one second. But if you're any other nationality fighting in Brazil, at least four seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and this shows and that, an that's entire... That's an allusion to <laughs> I think pretty much, uh, pretty much every folklore fight of every white guy that feels he was robbed, but probably wasn't. <laughs> yeah. But there's a, a whole different way of thinking about positions. But exactly as Dan was saying, I mean, there is a, a huge difference when someone comes in the beginning of their jiu-jitsu journey and they're learning close guard and their legs are prized apart by their opponent. And then they begin to move around them. They feel they have no control and they've lost guard. Whereas certainly as you go further, that can be pushed off to a point where someone could have entirely passed your hips, be standing next to you. But you understand they have no effective control over your hip, shoulder and face. So you feel... As safe as you did. Because yeah, you just bump them and take them back or regard or whatever. Yeah. yeah or in so. my case, just cry and lose position. Too modest. Until I've cried and lost position, it feels very much like God. <laughs> Too modest. But um, I think, so, so this is an interesting perception because uh, how do you create a model and words for discussing something that is continuously evolving, both for the community and for you as an individual, and as new individuals come into the community, they go through a different, maybe, path? No, we want them to be like the gorillas with the cold water, <laughs> the bananas in the... Right? Yeah, yeah. We want to take them through all the terrible stuff we went through. 
<laughs> but but generally speaking, you can start discussing this in a different way. For me, for example, I tell guy, new guys that it's the knees that matter for for the guard mostly. That's but, interesting. I t I tell new guys they have to be able to apply their weight. <laughs> what do you tell you guys? I'm, I'm a big fan of shouting incredibly bad, nonsensical axioms at new people. You know, like, strength is better than technique. You know, quickly fall on your back. Grey wall. <laughs> no, when, when somebody starts improving, like, yeah, I think it makes sense when somebody gets near their blue belt to start giving them wrong advice and see what it does to them. Like, just to see if they can, if they're just blindly accepting stuff you say or if you can manipulate them or maybe make some money off it or <laughs> no, with, with slight cult um, following with, with people who are beginning i actually personally on on the rare occasions when i'm trusted with showing someone something in, in their early stages i like to start from the end you know if we're talking about the flow oh, chart yes. the the steps in between guard to submission which ultimately is winning the fight i mean uh, from guard to submission there are many many steps in between mm -hmm. but when we look at a flow chart and we we stand in the very beginning and imagine ourselves not looking at the whole chart but out from that first spot with four branches each with five branches each with six branches we can't see the end and it's disheartening i agree and a very important thing is to say okay this is the end this is where you are there is a very long and complex flow chart in between but just remember where you're trying to go and keep your eye not on the next decision, but at least 50% on your end goal. I agree. When, when I teach beginners and I teach a class uh, in a place where they, they do different martial art and, and I, I've been teaching them jujitsu on and off for the past four years and each time we start again, we always start from side control and back. Because mm -hmm. I feel that that's, that's the easiest way to teach people this is where we're going to. Start from here. And even on a physical level, if you feel comfortable here, the rest of the fight won't be so terrible. So uh, um, I agree entirely. I think so that's a really good way to, to do it. Something I find beneficial is, is to take someone and put them on my chest. They've taken mount position, explain to them that it is dominant and they don't yet understand why. Teach them a very basic Hodja Gracie style cross choke. They feel the cross choke and they understand that it chokes me out. Then into my guard, now cross choke me. It doesn't take them very long to understand that my ability to drive them away with my hips is what's preventing them from finishing the choke. And all of a sudden, the context, why do I need to pass the guard? Why should I play what you, Lucas, once called the gentleman's game? Of, uh, <laughs> of passing the guard and obtaining and stabilizing position, why is this relevant to the choke? Because it's all magic in the beginning, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I agree. I, I, I love I tend, this choke. I tend to do that about two months in. About two months in. I'm never trusted with anyone that long. <laughs> I think I think it's good for people to get a, a solid base and really not feel so terrified when somebody else applies weight to them. And mount bothers me less. I'm, I'm sure MMA-oriented people are, are concerned more with mount. Uh, I'm, my mount is crap, and and I feel much more comfortable pe teaching people side control and, and back and back attacks because they're they're much more. Mount has an element where you can be flipped over. Side control, you, you can't really be swept from side control. You can, but it's it's not the, the thing you can be regarded. So side control and back control are much more uh, extreme for me. And that's why I think it's a good end to start. Especially, as you said, in pure jiu-jitsu. Striking changes oh, yeah. things. With yeah, striking, yeah, obviously being in bottom mount is, is horrific. But 
side control is a much less useful position. To strike effectively from side mm -hmm. control endangers your position. True. Whereas striking when you're on top half guard, that leg that you have caught allows you to prevent someone from retreating as you pummel them mercilessly. Whereas mm -hmm. side control, they can now flip you over. You have to lift your weight to generate any downward momentum in the strike. I mean, but that's that's a different game. I think that's an interesting uh, uh, exposition to talk about something we discussed about the map, the face face of uh, jujitsu, and then how you reapply one map to another area that might be similar. Yeah. So, so let's let's go with a, a, a short explanation of the face face in, in control theory or in physics, and then we can see how we how we translate it to the world of of jiu-jitsu. So we can start with control theory and then go to generalized face spaces and tesseling. So so generally speaking, uh, uh, we can put on paper the behavior of a system. So what we do usually in high school physics, we draw the trajectory of, I don't know, you throw a stone off a building, the, you can put the, the uh, the, the time axis on the bottom and the I know height axis on the on the vertical and then you draw it so you have one parameter one is time the other is position then you can change maybe instead of drawing the position you can draw the velocity over time okay we'll, we'll put some maybe visual explanation of this in the show notes but for people who can't see which is everyone because this is the podcast uh, what Dan is referring to, uh, to people who, to people who haven't, uh, don't remember their high school phys physics or math, uh, you usually see either straight lines or curves on these graphs, right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, you can have more complicated stuff because you can use other parameters uh, to, to describe the system. For example, we sometimes use uh, pressure and temperature to, to describe the state of, uh, let's say, uh, gas. In the container, con or, uh, condensed gas. Uh, above a certain pressure, it will always be uh, fluid, for example. Uh, above a certain temperature, it will always be gas, for example. And then you can put there are areas in this chart where below certain values of temperature and pressure, it will be uh, uh, either fluid or gas, and areas will be something else, so even solid or fluid. So this is the first uh, place where phase space is, is really described in physics, the first place they used it. And if you take this idea, you, you can think about it as a, as a map. The place on the map is the set of parameters. So you can think about I know, the space parameters of where you are and, and XYZ in a 3D space, but you can use other parameters, for example, uh, the pressure or the temperature so or the I'll, volume. I'll just give a quick, uh, maybe a practical example of that. Say uh, you're in the middle of a flat plane. Uh, I'm completely doing a, doing a completely theoretical model now. So you're sitting in your car and you can drive in any direction. Um, so any, any distance that you go will, will use up such and such amount of petrol. So you can you can uh, you can draw uh, a map of where you'll be according to how much petrol you've used. So you know that if you're somewhere, it means that you've used X amount of petrol, and maybe the the motor has heated up this this many degrees. Now you could be in different positions on that plane, maybe a circle or maybe a different shape, 
you can you can get to different places just modeling the amount of petrol you've used and the and the temperature you've got to but if you take the the entire collection of all the options that's your face space so yeah the position in the map kind of say what is the state of the system the so position in the on 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 the on, map on, but on the map doesn't have to be two-dimensional we can now generalize it we have a an infinite uh, dimensional map okay so you can go and can have if you have 10 parameters describing your system whatever they may be it doesn't matter there's a position in that space and that position in the space is the state of the system now you generalize you say we take a sparring in jiu-jitsu I don't really know how to parameterize it but maybe there is a way to parameterize it and if I take the exact state of the system that's a point in that phase space yeah, I think, I think that's what we do intuitively. I think that's how we even give the positions their names. Because we, we talked about this more in depth in the Hebrew version, but in, in general, uh, we already know that the transition from God to half God to the domination positions, uh, side control or mount or nearing submissions, all these things, when we think about not a specific sparring session or a specific competition, but the general case, two people are doing uh, are fighting under the jiu-jitsu rule set we can sort of say that in each situation we can predict what what actions will uh, lead to one side submitting or the other i mean uh, we, we could parameterize it it's something that i certainly don't have the patience or self-discipline to sit <laughs> through and do but if we take you know I'm, I talk about him a lot because I'm a very big fan, but Rob Bernacki, the, the Canadian black belt, he talks a lot about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as a game of simply frames and levers, frames and levers, frames and levers. Everything you do is a frame versus a lever versus a frame versus a lever. Okay. And if we look at a human body and we can map the amount of pivots and possible fulcrums and potential levers that there are, and we can also map, if we were to be so inclined to spend the time on it, the possible outcomes of all of the different head-to-head -head conflicts between frames and levers and fulcrums and bases and pivots i mean where the lever is weaker than the fulcrum and the base the lever will break when the lever is stronger than the fulcrum and the base the base will move i mean there is a set number of things that can happen there are just many 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 nuances along the way mm. Many, many is a many, many is a. This is this is why I said I don't have the self-discipline or patience to do it. Or money, because because even modeling something which is much more simple, like chess, where the the like chess is infinite. Okay, everybody knows this. The, the, well, not really. It's infinite, functionally but, infinite. Yeah, the, there's the lots of there's lots of options there. It's difficult to analytically describe all the options of what can happen in a chess game simply because even with serious computing power it's difficult it, we this heuristics people can sort of uh, uh try to estimate estimate the the, the 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 best directions to go but it, it's hard to describe the whole thing and that's just chess i mean it under the chess rule set nobody's allowed to flip the board up and and take all the pieces away so if you go if you go to more physical challenges like jiu-jitsu where there are chances of thing of unexpected things happening um, it's virtually impossible to do to do that kind of modeling it would be a nice idea but I don't think there's enough money in 
in the whole. So here is here is the difference as well between uh, scientists and people who model things for financial purposes and business. Uh, it's possible. You're absolutely right. I mean, in chess and jiu-jitsu, an interesting comparison because of all combat sports, jiu-jitsu is by far and away the most turn-based sport. Uh, it's it's not like boxing where every single punch I throw I intrinsically leave myself open for a counter There are positions in jiu-jitsu that are so dominant that I can make a submission attempt where of course I expose myself in some way But there are probably many steps that my opponent would have to go through from that point of exposure to then be able to threaten a fight winning move uh, for example if I'm on someone's back and I try and choke them with a rear naked choke, or strangle them with a rear naked choke. It's unquestionable that I'm exposing myself to the possibility of them controlling my arms and beginning to escape the back. However, my exposure comes, they control my arm, they now have to successfully escape my back and consolidate a position before they're able to mount any significant attack. Whereas in boxing, a retreating puncher always, you know, we call it that puncher's chance, always has that opportunity in the middle of a combination to throw a hand up and hit something and hit me right on the button and I go straight down and there's nothing I can do mm -hmm. about it. So, but what we have is, uh, you know... That's why striking is much more like a... Uh, how do you say shishbish in English? Backgammon? Backgammon, backgammon yeah. Yeah, although if anyone calls it backgammon, you know it means they can't play the game. <laughs> <laughs> if they don't call it shishbish or taola, you're fine. You'll win. But yeah, there's a, there's a much higher element of, of dynamic shifting of momentum in, in striking than in grappling. But we have, yes, a large phase, phase space, but if we start to map occurrences, then we see that they happen within a very limited section of this phase space. And sure, we have anomalous results that sit outside of it, as we always do. But That's exactly what, what we feel. You can use this method of phase space to come up, perhaps, with uh, pra um, practical and useful uh, analogies. And I use the word analogy more than I use the word model here because it's a way of thinking about it rather than really use it to do calculations or anything like this. Again, I don't think anybody will ever uh, expend serious resources uh, with anything to do with jujitsu because it's not profitable enough, even yes. even on world championship levels. It's but, just there's just not enough money in it for people to research it. Yeah, but it's quite interesting like to talk about. Oh, yeah, yeah definitely. Absolutely. So what we, we came up with uh, in our discussion, we said perhaps you, you can think about this uh, generalized space space. And yes, it's once you put uh, states, you now have path, this path through the space space as you go from one state to another. And you start to see that, to, let's say you start standing up or close guard or whatever, where, where do usually those uh, paths go through? And then you have where the treaded, treaded trails and the yes. uncharted areas. So, so we have, if, if we're talking about the mobile side, we have uh, nodes and vertices, right? Mm -hmm. So the, 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 the vertices would be the techniques and the nodes would be the positions. And the transition from position to position, even if it, it's not exactly a named position, but definitely with the main ones, the, the, then you get the, exactly these flowcharts that you can describe and share with other people or, or, or... That's called skeletonizing the entire phase space. You go take the main routes, but then you come up with all those uh, 
small ways and uncharted areas and if you think about it there's a ma geographical map mountains and you have valleys so you go down the valleys that's easy this is how you win the mountains that you need to put in a lot of energy to go through that's not so easy to go through there to win but perhaps you now come up with this new technical way to do something so you found the mountain pass that if you go through there, perhaps you have a new thing. You have mm -hmm. cliffs, which are the, the unreversible positions. Or at least if you don't uh, jump high enough to go back up the cliff. But then you start thinking about, so we have a map of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu now. Does the map of Nogi looks exactly the same? Not exactly. And if you go down to MMA, then you have some similarities in this map of useful uh, trails, but not all of them are as useful and you can start to figure out why is it good to not use too much energy if you're trying to find new stuff because as you put in more in energy into it you get more momentum stuff gets fuzzy and you need more energy to try new stuff it's way more risky the cliffs are higher now yeah so we, we were talking about uh, um, chaos theory and uh, and we took some terms from there that's a different a different branch of physics and math and and the nice uh, the nice example we like like to give is the fractals and um, the length of a shoreline depending on the resolution in which you me measure it is relevant here. We talked about this idea where a phase space uh, can look like one thing if you if you try to look at a broad picture, but if you zoom in, then it looks completely different. For example, uh, what we talked about before. In the beginning of of uh, the popul popularity of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, the guard looked like one thing, and the idea was uh, hold your guard, and when it's opened, the the game is changed and is now in favor of the guy passing. Now today, we know because we have added resolution. Many more cases have have occurred and been documented and checked and thought about, and the definition of uh, the relationship between the two opponents is now different. It's not that if the guard is open, the fight is finished. It's similar to, to what happened with uh, the transition from judo to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. In the judo rule set, once the guy has fallen, if he's fallen in a certain way, that's a ipon, and the fight is finished. In, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it just begins. Uh, and even, I'm sure lots of people have seen the old uh, video clips of Diego Cano and other, other founding mem members of uh, Judo and uh, seen them uh, fighting in a way which looks like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. They only, uh, they let it go. They wanted to focus on the, on the standing up game and even on a specific part of it. And I think Josh had an idea about how that applies in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu too. So go ahead. Uh, yeah, I mean, basically every martial art that we have is somehow sort of pulling back and refining and specializing more and more over time. And one of the things that we see in jiu-jitsu is, is, as we said in the beginning, that flow chart that we look out at is so enormous and it's so dense and complex. And this phase space that we're playing in is so broad that it becomes essential to break it down into smaller pieces to begin a learning process. And when there's that much to do, and especially when we look at judo, where which is obviously jiu-jitsu is derived from and you aren't allowed to grab hold of brazilian jiu-jitsu brazilian jiu-jitsu excuse me yes yeah. 
where, uh, where the modern geese of mission grappling is derived from judo, and there are many differences. In modern geese of mission grappling rules, you're allowed to attack the legs from standing and use legs in takedowns and grab the gi pants, which you're not allowed to do in judo, something that comes more from wrestling. There's a, a movement forward, but the ground sparring, when we break it down, we still look at upper body attacks and upper body submissions as the basic building blocks. Yeah, so, so let's, let's elaborate on that a little bit because uh, we had this discussion uh, after training and... Uh, I think we've been having it for about a year. I, 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 <laughs> when I come to train and have a few... Uh, I, I don't have a lot of time to train during the week. I usually arrive really tired. And what I want to do is not think so much about my what I'm going to do in sparring and just play the game as I know it. And training with Joss challenged me because suddenly I had to say to myself, hey, wait a minute, these assumptions I had were not exactly, it's not just the game as I know it that matters because people are going to change and come at me with uh, new stuff, with new stuff or stuff which is, just outside my comfort zone and I have to find a way to comfortably exit my comfort zone. Comfortably so, numb. <laughs> and the verbal debate started when we discussed leg locks and I was like, ah, leg locks are, we don't need to, we don't need to practice leg attacks and sparring. We can just agree not to do them. And Josh had a counter opinion, which I think is, is important to talk about. I mean, I'm, I'm extremely lucky in that I've been able to travel an enormous amount over the past few years. I mean, I started training with you guys. Both of you were there. If you don't remember me, I remember you <laughs> in my first ever class uh, in August 2nd, 2010. It was the first time I did Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and oh, I came wow. to... Yeah, we to, were blue belts, I you think. Were, I think Dan was a purple belt, yeah. possibly. We, we were four years in. But, yeah, but you see, to me, it makes no difference because you were both ninja gods to the guy <laughs> on his first day who yeah. couldn't do a single thing. Yeah, and yeah, don't you forget that. Hey, it's, <laughs> I, I can't forget it. I have in uh, the slideshow that runs on the screensaver of my computer a photograph of, do you remember Asaf and Shani? Yeah. Yes. So uh, I have a photograph of Shani who was, what, you know, she's like 60 kilos dripping wet with 10 kilos of weights in her pockets. She's a tiny <laughs> thing. I have a photograph on my screensaver of her strangling the life out of me in uh, nogi sparring <laughs> maybe three months after I started training and uh, it's, good days. Uh, it's an important thing to remember <laughs> easy to easy to forget how easy you can be to strangle oh yeah once, so, once we start modeling once we start I like that that was a sort of a comic break but it, but I think it's a it's an important point once we start modeling with our brains we forget singular events absolutely uh, which are not consistent with our model. And we dismiss them as anomalies and we say, of course, anomalous things happen, but singular events are extremely important because they're, they're what make up the body oh, yeah. of the whole. Oh, definitely. But, but they can also show you a singular event which doesn't reoccur, mm -hmm. can show you, if you remember <laughs> it, it can show you what direction you closed and why. It reoccurred. Shani strangled me several times, <laughs> and not just that once. Yeah, well, we should discuss a bit of trial and error. I think we forgot that bit before. We should uh, have that later. But if anyone's training jujitsu, they already know a little bit about trial. Trial and error, and error so. is what turns is the mechanism that turns a bunch of stuff that happens into a general rule. 
If we don't have trial and error, we'll, we'll never be able to assimilate the right parameters and understand the, what the phase space. Yeah. But uh, so we, we started just there. We got a little bit sidetracked mm -hmm. about me being beaten up by, uh, by people who weigh half as much as me. But we started talking a little bit about leg locks. And I was saying I've, I've had the, the great good fortune to travel and train in a very, very, very large number of gyms. Maybe in each one only once or twice, some of them a little bit more. But I've trained in all, several countries across Europe, in North America, in Hong Kong, Japan. I've been extremely fortunate. And I've been exposed to a lot of different styles of teaching and training. And one of the things that really glared me in the face very quickly was my total lack of understanding of the game of leg locks. And I was very aggressively confronted with it when I was in my later blue belt years and was traveling and was getting leg locked by people left, right and center in my execution of techniques that were intended to attack the upper body. That was the biggest thing. It was the way that I was exposing myself to the leg locks. I think that there's two separate elements here. One is whether or not we want to learn a method of attack that doesn't necessarily fit with a personal practitioner's philosophy of jujitsu. And the other one is if the methods of attack that we're using that do fit our personal philosophy are opening us up to a problem. Obviously, there's no end to the discussion because we could say, well, the Berimbolo opens you up to being ground and pounded in an MMA fight. But we're not, we're not fighting MMA. It's a different mechanism. It's not about leverage over a limb with a pivot and a base and a fulcrum and all of the things that we're used to thinking about for the upper body. And I think lower body attacks are, are an important part of the game as a result of that. It's the they same existed. principle. They existed of in course. judo even, not yeah. just in the beginning of jiu-jitsu. But I, I think from... None of the times when I was in Rio, for example, and in Rio, people spar uh, in a pretty intense way, especially with gringos, especially with returning gringos. Um, I don't remember leg locks being important up to 2008, which is the last time I was, was in Rio. I don't remember them being an important factor, even with my sloppy open guy. They weren't. I mean, from, from most accounts, I don't have statistics, forgive me, but from most accounts, they weren't a significant part of the game for a very substantial chunk of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu's history, especially when Brazil was the dominant force in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which so, it isn't anymore. So the Americans are, are at fault. Uh, the Japanese. What about the Japanese? We can't ignore the Japanese. Shuto, uh, Japanese wrestling and fighting, catch wrestling. Yes, Americans are, you know... Josh Barnett and, and all of these guys expound on catch wrestling all the time, but catch wrestling is English. I mean, this is a, an English martial art to begin with. Does catch, catch wrestling have levels in it? Uh, as someone uh, recently I overheard say, catch wrestling is, is the Krav Maga of grappling. It's the, <laughs> if it works, use it of no, grappling. That would be Sambo. <laughs> Sambo is the Krav Maga of, of grappling. I read recently someone said the Krav Maga have turned white belt spazzing out into a full-blown martial art and you have to respect that. <laughs> but there's, there's a, a rich history of leg locks in many, many, many grappling cultures and many grappling forms from around the world. And yes, America and the United States particularly, uh, but the Americas in general, I mean, North America, I'm talking about uh, Canada mm -hmm. and, and the US particularly are the epicenter of leg locks right now. But I mean, I was fortunate to train in Japan and you, you 
you better know about leg locks if you want to spar with guys above purple belt, a purple belt level or above in Japan. I mean, they have a very rich and long history of it. If you look at the classic Japanese fights, I mean, Kazushi Sakuraba was an extraordinary fighter. And yes, he's famous for his Kimura controls and especially when opponents were on his back. But if you watch many of his great grappling fights, then he's at the very least creating lots of opportunities with, with uh, spinning diving toe holds, with leg locks, with heel hook attacks. I mean, these are a vital part of the arsenal of Japanese grappling as well as North American. That's interesting. Maybe maybe it's my filter. Maybe it's because I was never interested in it, then I never saw it. I, I think that we also need to put back into the discussion the question of why or the excuses that we use not to do it. And mm -hmm. Of course, uh, we, talk about, we talk about injuries here. And uh, usually when they tell you why we're not doing leg lock is because it's way more dangerous than all the other stuff and uh, serious injuries and uh, this is why we don't do them or we don't do them only above a uh, certain uh, grade or belt. Uh, in my opinion, to me, <laughs> maybe I'm not risk averse as the next guy, but I, in my mind, if you don't do it, then you're going to get injured when you do do it. So maybe you need to start early rather than start late get to know it, get to know the limits, get everybody in the gym knowing the limits of when to tap and when not to break someone's leg. And you create the sensitivity over time, uh, I hope, perhaps, and I do think it should be part of what we do in the game. And I think that if we do it over time, it becomes a part of the gentleman's game because you also find the counters and everything that's very effective at first, over time becomes less effective because you figure out how to deal with it so it's not that it's a sucker punch every time someone uh, touches your leg it's not there's things you can uh, do about it it's not that easy to get a leg lock uh, it's not that easy to get away from them but i think mostly for in my mind it's just a cultural thing rather than really that it's way more dangerous I mean, you have a lot of self-fulfilling prophecy here, right? You say it's dangerous, you keep people away from it, and then, as you're saying, potentially they they become so unfamiliar with it that they can provoke their own injuries. You know, spinning the wrong way into heel hooks is something that's often talked about. Like a beginner who doesn't know how to defend a heel hook, you apply it, and if they talk their own body the wrong way, then they have the potential to do serious damage to their leg. This, of course, means you're not doing the heel hook correctly, by the way. Because if, if you're doing the heel hook correctly, you have sufficient control over the upper part of their leg that they will be unable to talk their own knee the wrong way. By the way, I'm talking from the point of view yeah. where I had the guy pulling a toehold on me in, in Brazil. He was a gringo, though, the Canadian. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I remember that. And he, he, he really hurt my, my ankle. But really, I didn't know what to do. Should I tap? Should I not tap? I was really just kind of not in my element and I kind of think if I've had a couple of years of experience around that I'll probably know either to tap on time or do understand what should I do about it or just ask or just ask or whatever so, but that's but that's the, th the thing you see um, I think if we take a broad perspective and and, and compare this to different uh, different fighting methods and different sports the the payoff in comparison to the potential uh, loss here is huge. I mean, the potential loss is huge, not the payoff. Because in, in my opinion, you can, you can sterilize the game completely and it will still be a nice game. Um, on the other hand, if you, if you allow it,
statistics is against you here because I, I because, don't even know if there is a statistics. Jiu-jitsu is is dependent on people and in well in places like Rio or maybe I don't know New York or on the West Coast you have lots of people coming in all the time so if a few or even a generation is damaged it doesn't matter but Israel is a small place there's not so many people here and if you have a bunch of key people injured it'll be a it's a loss it to is the sport. A, it is a loss it's to definitely the a loss to them happens. because because knee injuries are severe you have a lot to lose not a little bit it's not like an armbar or know. even a kimura shoulders shoulder injuries are extremely serious but then, this is, but, this then is very, but they don't happen a lot that i have to disagree with firstly i mean if we take this anecdotally okay i've seen a uh, even just where we are in our limited sample group of people where we train there are several shoulder injuries and there have been several more in the past equal to the they exceed the number of leg injuries but that's a total MacGuffin because we yeah, don't train very much with leg locks so this doesn't mean anything but shoulder injuries can be very significant there's no question about it I think people trauma sh yeah, injuries? people, people misunderstand overuse. people completely trauma they completely misunderstand the potential effects of things like an armbar they don't really understand that a good armbar is not going to break your arm it's actually if pulled hard enough it's going to tear your pectoral muscle off your skeleton I mean you're going to create problems in the rotator cuff Kimura's people who uh, have their shoulder jammed it's often it's a very difficult one to disengage from omoplatas uh, particularly are something that we attack the shoulder and it's very hard to come out of safely when someone taps it takes skill to disengage without further harming their shoulder i mean these are very 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 dangerous and i i found very little statistics i'm a very good googler um if you're looking for niche pornography i can find that no problem but statistics <laughs> on brazilian jiu-jitsu it turns out are a little bit harder to come by i i, I want to uh, subscribe <laughs> to your newsletter <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it, it's in the it's in the deep web so <laughs> you could, you'll find me if you need to but uh, i i did find a couple of interesting studies one of them which i think is probably the most relevant here is um from the journal of athletic training and it's old it's 2009 so this is interesting because we're talking at the cusp. We're talking when you said in 2008 you're in mm -hmm. Brazil, there wasn't a large emphasis on leg locks. But 2009 in, in the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu uh, Nogi Championship, which is particularly relevant because Gi game is intrinsically less inclined to leg locks for a multitude of reasons that we don't need to get into. But this is when leg locking started to become a very real part of the game. And this was a Nogi championship that saw a large influx of people from other places. This was no longer just Brazilians as it was in 2006 when yeah, so Roger I'll, Gracie was fighting. I'll just cut in for a second and, and I'd like to hear what, what you read. But I remember when our teacher, Alan, Alan Moraes, was uh, in Israel, I think uh, the, time, the time before last, and that should be just around those years 2009 or something like that and he taught the 50 50 mm -hmm. and he said yeah these two kids in the tournament started doing this and now everybody wants to do it so i'm going to teach it and that was like a really new thing i think that's 2009 so yeah it was around then so we're at an interesting point in jiu-jitsu which is why this one stood out the other reason why it stood out is because it was the only study that wasn't self-reported by athletes which is functionally useless because they'll tell you cauliflower ear is the worst injury they ever had but <laughs> it was non-self-reported and categorized by belt level and under ibjjf rules why this is important is because we can understand looking at the belt levels what submissions and attacks were being used by the competitors 
So we have here, I grouped the, uh, I took white belts completely out of the equation because white belt divisions are known to be injury magnets in every way, shape or form. And mm -hmm. if you were taking the white belt division in your average local competition, uh, someone will bust their knee going to the bathroom. Like it's not a, <laughs> it's what, not what, a What's the sample size? The sample size is 1,606 max, part max participants overall. So it's a substantial size. This yeah, was a very nice. large Mundial. This yeah. was a very large world championship, which is another reason. The uh, other study I have has over 5,000 match participants, but has some issues like it wasn't categorized by belt class, but we'll, we'll get into that in a minute. But the, the first study here, just from these Nogi Wells, they looked at the medical assistance provided to people and the injuries diagnosed by physicians and paramedics on site. So we can assume a, a reasonable level of reliability within the standard deviation that we'd expect. Yeah, errors would, would well, average out. They least. didn't have imaging equipment. I'm sure there's things they missed, but nonetheless, no, we you, can assume it's a reasonable... Yeah, you'd have biases because yeah. of the people checking. Exactly. But there's enough people, and it's an, it's, it's just beginning point. Okay. Well, but they also don't cancel out, yeah. but if there's a real... Uh, a real injury is, is going to be seen. Uh, that's one, and also if there's a real result yeah. by a gap, then you can neglect the that those also areas. it's important to say that what, what i would like to look at here is not overall numbers although they are relevant and we can talk about them but rather taking white belts out of the equation for the reason we're discussing blue and purple belts sit in a rules category where only straight foot locks are allowed like what we call the achilles lock mm -hmm. so a very low risk very simple foot lock mm -hmm. which is not something that we consider dangerous it's in the ibjjf rule set from white belt and up this is legal for everyone it puts no talking on the knee nothing very very simple footlock and then we have brown and black belt where knee bars calf slices and toe holds are allowed alongside the straight footlock now because it's ibjjf they're still not reaping the knee and they're still not inserting heel hooks into the game but it's a substantial difference in uh, attack vectors that you have on the leg so if we look at the attack surface of the leg your physicist, I'm using cybersecurity terms, and if we look at the attack surface of the leg and we see you have tools and vectors. So, you know, our tools are our limbs and the vector for the white belt, mm -hmm. for the blue and purple is a straight foot lock and for brown and black is straight foot lock, calf slicer, knee bar and toe hold. Obviously, we know that a calf slicer is like a nutcracker on your knee and is not actually attacking the calf but can destroy your knee. So we have two things that are very, very, very heavily focused on attacking the knee mm -hmm. and we have two that are very focused on attacking the ankle and the foot. And Lo and behold, 32 per 1,000 instances of blue and purple belt resulted in injury. 30 per 1,000 instances resulted in injury for brown and black belt. The distribution in blue and purple was 37.5% of injuries were in shoulder and arms, and 31.25 were in the knee and ankle. In brown and black, 33.3% were in shoulder and arms and 33.3% were in knee and ankle. So the, when we added knee bars, calf slices, and toe holds, we have an increase from 31.25 to 33.3%. I mean, this is really negligible. Yeah, it's all 30. It's all 30. And what's interesting here as well is that we see that the total injury rate per 1,000 and the distribution of those injuries is consistent across very different rule sets. No, but they're still all allowed to attack legs. Yes, but the actual submissions are very limited to the ankle, and yet we see this in, in uh, blue and purple belt divisions, and yet we see the same kind of rate of injury to the leg. They're attacking legs in a very different way. 
like the 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 potential damage that you can cause on a knee like an ankle can pronate it can supinate it moves in a completely different but, way to a knee but they didn't filter out i mean knees can be injured even in different attacks that's oh. not filtered out here that you don't so know right? this is the most fun so i have another study here which actually unfortunately there's no one where they did both the uh, mechanism of injury and the belt level okay. but the mechanism of injury is fascinating right so what we have here is a study that was run over it was published in the orthopedic journal of sports medicine and was run over uh, eight competitions in hawaii between 2005 and 2011. so again spanning that area from classic the gentleman's game mm -hmm. into the the more modern game of jiu-jitsu as it's often called including footlocks this is a big sample size over 5,000 match participants and 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 they try to filter out the attack versus the type of attack versus the injury well we have here injury mechanism which is the type of attack injury type and their frequency so again if we look at it the distribution is such we see again 33.3 percent of injuries are knee and ankle so it's the same distribution. We're seeing very consistently that a third of injuries in jiu-jitsu tournaments across the board are to the knee and ankle. What's interesting is that in upper body injuries, submissions were accounting for 59% of the injuries to the upper body, but submissions themselves only accounted for 9% of upper body injuries. Of uh, Sorry, submissions accounted for only 9% of lower body injuries, of knee and ankle injuries. Knees and ankles and feet were more often injured when they're not attacked. When they're not being attacked. Yeah. We actually saw people injuring their knees and ankles passing guard. Okay, a couple of these are like turf toe. It's like a ridiculous injury to put in. I dragged my foot on the entry to a takedown and now I lost some skin on it, so I'm crying to the medic. Not quite sure what that guy's doing in a combat sports tournament but we can ignore those but there are we can see that the method of injury and the type of injury and i mean it's it's very clear on the paper we have mcl sprains from passing guard from general forward apply, applying forward pressure yeah. that's standing in someone's guard and, and applying forward pressure stress to the knee stress to the knee the the, the sweeps that we use I think Daily, also where we take someone's knee and we apply a supinating or pronating also all the knee injuries I've seen so far were not caused by a leg lock they were caused by a bunch of other stuff but that's again but that's because we don't see a lot of them no no I'm just saying that personally uh, this is what the I interesting see. statistic would be would be to take a sport like Sambo and see how much those guys get injured. Oh, so know. Sambo, they don't publish anything because we've, we've actually talked about Sambo before. And I think when, when you're studying and training Sambo in Russia under the state and you get injured, they just throw you in like a box if you can't recover and they ignore the statistic when they report <laughs> it. And they all uh, wrestle bears for, <laughs> for training and they're uninjurable human beings. Sambo would be fascinating. Children practice left locks. It's a completely different rule set, but we couldn't, I couldn't find anything. What I did find was distribution of injuries across wrestling. And wrestling is something that has absolutely no attack mechanisms on the legs whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And yet, you have two distinct kinds of wrestling in Greco-Roman, 
where only the upper body is used, very judo-like rule set, mm -hmm. and freestyle wrestling, where takedowns can incorporate attacks on the legs, holds, and so on. And professional wrestling, let's not forget of that. Of course, of course, where the injury rate's astronomical because they, they do a bunch of steroids and then jump on their own head. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love this move. It's yeah. a, I like it when they hit each other with the chairs, that's my favorite part. I like the chair wrapped in barbed wire. <laughs> I particularly enjoyed it when the man who is now president of the United States was in oh, a WWF awesome. show and awesome. handed the chair awesome. to one of the wrestlers. Then, yep, he's the president now. I love this world. <laughs> it's like a show. So, injury distribution here. Now, this is a very strange one. I got it from the International Network of, of Wrestling Researchers. They've cited the studies that they aggregated everything from i looked into them we won't go through them now we can add a link to this this page in the show notes uh but we won't go into the the cited studies now because it's too long but they checked out this is based on aggregated across reasonably uh, reliable studies um greco-roman wrestling showed a 25 percent distribution bias towards knee injuries and freestyle wrestling 53 percent now so what, what does that tell us? In general, the stuff we talked about, jujitsu and, and this wrestling stuff. From the way, the way I understand it, it means, well, these sports are slightly dangerous to the knees anyway, but if you allow uh, leg attacks, there's a chance, uh, it's hard to say, but there is a chance that you'll make it much more dangerous. I, I see from statistics that these sports are, firstly, it's very important to say, for combat or full contact sports, remarkably safe. And we'll, uh, we'll talk about that in a minute compared to other oh, combat compared sports. To like, compared to judo, taekwondo, karate, or contact sports like tackle football, these wrestling and jiu-jitsu are remarkably safe sports. Oh, compared to basketball, they're oh, safe. Absolutely. Basketball but, is the big knee killer. Yeah, that's without question. Too. But basketball, we have a whole different risk analysis system because there what are people making $100 million dollars a year playing it, which there aren't in jiu-jitsu. What do you make of this difference between freestyle and Greco-Roman statistics? Or um, are you not making a difference? I, I don't make... I, I would be supposing only in drawing a conclusion. My supposition would be if we look at the mechanism of injury also in, in the study across the Hawaiian tournaments, we do see takedowns being someplace where knees and ankles do get injured. Um, mm -hmm. I think that there's, and we saw it recently in our own gym, when someone decided to stand with one of our black belts and jammed his own leg into one of our black belt's legs and wrenched his own knee against a, a visitor managed to do that to himself which was a great shame but it was see that. entirely his fault i wasn't there so yeah. but he, i don't mind entirely his fault he popped a knee out and he was very gracious about it but, but somebody popped his own knee out yes someone popped their oh. own knee out and like someone damaged their own knee on anton's leg which Sucks was incredibly so stupid yeah that's like but well yeah Anton's would, legs are like trees yeah because well, anton is one of these sambo guys exactly. that wrestled bears from the age of three and will be thrown in a gulag if he ever loses a fight so he has uh so he but, just wins yeah he wins Anything he just life. looks at you and your knee breaks what are you so, gonna do so, but I, I really want to take this discussion because yeah. i love the statistics and it's interesting to see that there is no substantial uh uh, There's no substantial such evidence that it's way more dangerous as far as the occurrence of uh, of injuries is. But again, there are only two questions I think that I was asking here is first, uh, why don't we do knee bars? And I know two explanations. The main one is 
that it doesn't hurt so you don't know how when to tap so you don't tap so you break your leg so it's very dangerous for everybody don't ever do it this is usually what people say the cliche is that it breaks before it hurts yeah i don't think that I, I mean it's definitely hurt me before it's broken yeah <laughs> for, for me too so I, I i don't know if i even believe it i think it's probably true to many other stuff that you can do if that you do it fast and and that if you do injure it it's way worse than any other injury but really we do get knee injuries usually regardless of knee attacks perhaps one could say if we do knee attacks we understand our own knee and our opponent knee better the mechanics maybe it will happen even less i don't know but personally i feel that there is no real substantial evidence to say we shouldn't do it It, well, you have an, a historic precedent. It existed in Judo, they took it out. But they took so took, many things out. I, and I also personally believe that the reason that they took anything to do with the legs out of Judo was has because nothing they, to do with it. nothing to do with safety and it has everything to do with encountering Western-style wrestling and not enjoying the way and, it combated the rules. And set. televising it and yep. making it interesting. It has nothing to do with it. And a, a full sport, I mean, it's... I don't know that it has nothing to do with it. I know that it happened. I'd be I'd be much more cautious here in, in saying oh yeah let's go for it full time what 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 I'd be very interested to to do is uh, m- maybe after this podcast we we'll, maybe we'll get some reactions or maybe we can talk with people around the world and see because we're probably not the first ones to think about this and far from it it's a it's a seriously hot topic it, it would be it would be interesting to, to to get more modern statistics and to maybe a control group like take similar places once one which does one which doesn't do you mean like different divisions in the 2009 nogi no, world not, championship no, i mean not in a competition i yeah. mean in training training is difficult and this is the problem with collecting any statistics from training is that injuries are by and large self-reported and there's no observation of the mechanism of the injury no, and you routinely find it that, yeah you right. routine, i mean we can poll people i'll, I'll give you like, the modern answer to, to all of that big data will solve everything no let an algorithm uh, uh, try and map out everybody's injuries around the world and then give it a couple of years and you'll know but maybe you could talk to uh, instructors and professors people who teach and if they take it out because there are too many injuries and again there is at least in my opinion a lot of how you approach starting doing it If that, you do that's it the right point. way, perhaps it doesn't have to be so dangerous, perhaps it enriches the game, perhaps you understand way more about the mechanics. I know that I love going for the leg even from a close guard and so, or from the half guard and kind of twist the guy's uh, hips. And I know that if I do it to someone who's stupid enough to rotate fast the other direction, he's going to break his own leg. I, I th- I, but it never happened I, I, I tapped a positional control from you a few weeks ago you took my leg and I tapped you and you said you don't have to tap there and I told you so I said yeah but I've never encountered the position before I wasn't confident which way I should move my body and then I said to you can we go back to the position and let me move out of it so I understand for next time what to do yeah, we did yeah. that now I'm not going to break my leg in there again <laughs> thank God <laughs> so, so I think there's a lot about the how and the why and figuring out I'm not sure entirely that this kind of take, take it off the table completely maybe um, not maybe not but but I I think maybe the 
the approach that Brazilians took in like only teach it from purple belt and up or brown belt and up is healthy because I also feel that it, it harms the, the learning of the rest of the game. And when people start, if, if somebody is able to do a submission without bettering his, uh, his position control, then they'll tend to do that more in the beginning and then they'll miss out on, on a lot of the... the, the, the I, I would agree with you if, the way, the if you could do a leg lock without bettering your positional control. But you can't. But you, you can optimize. A, but you can optimize yourself to doing you, just that. You may, yes, of course you can. You can also optimize yourself to passing the guard, moving into mount, and doing but, the cross but, but that doesn't end. But that doesn't end uh, a match. I I do agree that there is the the one thing which people talk about as a, a downside to leg locks is that there is a higher risk of losing position when you attack your opponent's leg. You will not automatically lose position if you fail to close a submission. This is definitely untrue. But you are not able to attack your position so with a leg lock and remain in top it's position. It's more of a winner-take-all situation, and it t it makes the whole the whole map it makes the cliffs higher. Yeah. And By the way, if there is one argument towards not doing them, is that if Brazilians took them out from white and blue purple of all cultures in the world probably there's something about that. Brazilians started without they started with judo rules that's they why it's Maeda and uh, not Maeda and, and, yeah, um, Maeda, Maeda. and who, who else I'm no. bad with the names Maeda is the the guy who brought it from yeah. Japan he studied with Jigo Kano mm -hmm. and in the beginning Kano, it was, was called it. when judo was still called Kano Jiu-Jitsu yeah what he brought to Brazil he titled Maeda Jiu-Jitsu. Incidentally, um, in the surveys that I saw, and, and they were aggregated over large sample sizes, uh, we have an, uh, an approximate injury rate per 1,000 exposures of 30 in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, the same in collegiate wrestling, 30.7 injuries per 1,000 exposures, and yet in Judo competition we have 68.5 injuries per 1,000 exposures. So I don't know that taking leg locks out has necessarily made it safer. No, but judo is different. In judo, the the momentum Falling is much higher. Yes. Yeah, no, ju judo is a striking art. You you just yeah. you strike the other guy with with, with earth. With <laughs> <laughs> you pick him up and you hit him with a planet. I mean, it's an extremely <laughs> aggressive nice thing to, to do. It. Very nice. Way to and and I mean, yes, of course, Brazilian jiu-jitsu takedowns in competition are laughably bad. I mean, the high-level gi jiu-jitsu is three minutes of uh, blue belt local club circuit level judo and then somebody ankle picks or pulls guard uh it's i mean they're not comparable but there is a very high injury well that's in going to change now too yeah you have all these judo guys transitioning to to brazilian jiu-jitsu they're going to change the game yeah. and it's changing judo as well because oh yeah the american judo team pulling noaza and groundwork into judo in the is, in the Olympics, right? Yeah. Uh, we saw the yeah. Derby choke. Uh, uh, Alex Davies loss. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, no, I mean, we so it's yeah. changing judo for sure, but jujitsu itself is going to change. There's there's going to be a feedback to that. Absolutely. And ju judo guys are, are usually spectacular athletes. I mean, it was a, it was like a, a embarrassment, and and they felt it very hard to the Brazilian judo team that you know travis stevens from the united states is coming and winning mm -hmm. with brazilian jiu-jitsu style groundwork mm -hmm. against brazilian judokas and yeah. they really had got an earful from their coach and, we should and it find will change a, we should put up a, a, a video clip in the show notes yeah. of travis stevens or just a, yeah yeah he is, he is yeah, pretty great judo. 
Yeah, and and interestingly enough, he actually trains with uh, the very same group of people who are like right at the forefront of development of, of leg locks right now. I mean, he trains with with Hanzo Gracie's squad. In I think we can New York. also just you know think about reality. People do more and more do leg locks. If you're gonna keep it out of the game, I know that I feel help, helpless when somebody tries to pull a leg lock on me I not always know what to do and it's but it's only thing I've ever pulled off on you <laughs> you and Mike and the, the bunch of guys that do that uh, for me I think okay I need to know and practice this and know what to do about it even if I'm not gonna attack I hate it I think I, I'm, I'm gonna practice more of it naturally because other people are gonna do it and I'm gonna have to but in general I hate the crap I feel that whenever, <laughs> whenever somebody attacks my leg, I can just grab their big toe and break it uh, very easily. So I, I, from my point of view is, okay, if leg locks are allowed, let's do finger locks and toe locks too. And then that will change the game even more and make everything even more extreme. But I think that's more of a comfort area kind of thing they rather also, than a real thing. They, they also sit out, they sit outside the philosophical system of jiu-jitsu, like a, what, grabbing finger, locks? finger and toe locks, because what you have is something so fragile that there is no need to create a meaningful base and control over a limb. If we're both standing and you grab my finger and wrench it very hard, it will break. And that's something that not you, you ending do. the fight. No, no, no by the way, like, yes, only yeah. pissing me off. No, but, but that's but that's like wrist locks. It will uh, it will what, only but, break if you do it fast. A, toe a lock wrist lock will only break if you do it fast, or if you gain enough positional exactly. control over someone's arm. Exactly. But, but with wrist locks in 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 uh, being done very quickly in jujitsu, you don't see success with it because. They are a stronger joint, and when you do a standing wrist lock, there are too many ways for someone to move their body quickly out of the way that you don't deal with it. Well, we do not see fights being won. But with fingers it. And, and toes are the same. The you can't, you can't just same. you can't just do it and win unless the other guy is really useless. Put, put aside winning. Put aside like a, a, a competition setting here, and look more at the principle of the mechanism by which you're creating the, the damage, right? Or the submission. Right? If you grab my finger and yank it, it breaks. If you grab my wrist and yank it, I move. And and that's almost inevitable. You you need why, the why, positional control. Why is that? Simple? If you grab my finger and yank it, I can move too. It's, it's the same break. thing. It's gonna but break. it's gonna break. But the difference is it's going to break. No, only if you get a really good grab. If you okay, turn yeah. that into the whole game. But if somebody, but but take it to the if somebody if we're if we're scrambling on on I don't know some sort of open guard and somebody goes for a foot lock why is going for a toe lock any different because in order he's to, exposing his toes he can no, hide them and go for a foot lock there's no question that go, like if we're scrambling and I try to attack a foot lock on you in attacking that foot lock I will have to set up my point of leverage, my point of control on the foot, I'm going to have to set up a fulcrum somewhere, I'm going to have to set up a base to control easy, the end of the limb, and it's very it. difficult, Neither and you can defend blah, blah, blah. If you grab my finger and wrench it, you don't need to do anything else. Whereas if I grab your foot and wrench know, it, you just move. If somebody is strong, it's hard to grab their fingers. It's not that easy. But if somebody is already starting to apply a foot lock and his toe is exposed, and you can grab it and gain leverage first. 
I would also suggest that if if I were to like have big you, toe? if I were to have you in a leg entanglement and be attacking a heel hook, and your solution to that is to yeah, wrench my toe, I'll end up with a broken toe, and you'll end up with a blown ACL if we take it into a fight. But like that's actually true for any attack. Yeah, you can gouge my eyes on a rear naked choke, but you're still going out, and I'm angry. <laughs> <laughs> like this is not uh, a Kimura. Uh, yeah, whatever. you can bite me in an armbar. And then I break your arm. Like there's so many. It, it's it, uh, a small joint manipulation. By the way, breaking people's toes is, kind, to, is kind of boring. And I, think I feel the same way about leg locks. I think they're legs, more complicated than we appreciate sometimes. You need okay, to yeah. do it right, and it's not that easy to get them. It's not that easy to apply them. And if you know what to do about them, then there's a lot of counters for you. There's Look, an enormous I, amount I, of fear I, in I, the beginning. I, I, I as agree. Well, I agree in 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 general with, with what you're saying. Also, I think it's inevitable. You're gonna have to deal with it. Uh, it happens. But my personal feeling and my intuition are, it's uh, it's less interesting than the main game. It's less interesting than the guard and passing. It's also... less interesting than, than gaining because, because you don't have to gain complete control like side control or back or even mount to do a leg lock. You can just do it, do it out of neutral positions. I think and it's that's true sort of now. Less, less interesting. I think it's true now. It's going to change when people realize what to do about it. The Maybe. game will change. I think that in reality, in reality, it's not that easy. You need control. You need to get there. If the other guy doesn't have the control. He's going to move for it. You have options. But I think that for you, your personal taste, you don't like fast game. And right now leg attacks are still on the fast game side of jiu-jitsu but i think that will change Maybe. i think i think you said something very interesting which is that you can attack from neutral positions with leg locks and i think that if we talk again about the face space and about all the positions within the face space if we were to take a very center point being the neutral position between two people this is a very 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 small space like what is what is actually a neutral position is extremely difficult to replicate in any meaningful By way. By the way, you people. add you add everyone has an advantage. A neutral position is now something else. Yeah. So yeah. We, if we take no 50, longer, 50, it's like it's yeah. like changing the the uh, market value of uh, real estate. Yeah, it 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 just changes the structure of the, of, the whole, of the entire thing. It's more it's it's more like the market value of real estate being affected by a volcanic eruption causing new land, and therefore land values change. Exactly. I mean, we're, we're looking. And I'm against yeah. volcanic eruptions. Who is it? I mean, I, okay, I I can consent that that's a very good point that I have no rebuttal to. But nonetheless, it's the the concept of a neutral position. If we take fifty fifty, right, which is named because it's perceived to be a neutral position mm -hmm. if you and i are in 50 50 and i am two meters tall and you are not quite two meters tall right i have a distinct advantage in 50 50 position very distinct purely by virtue of my physiology like my leg is harder for you to attack because it is tucked further around behind your back and i can attack your legs more e easily it's a serious problem for you in 50 50 so it ain't 50 50 <laughs> Don't go into that, no, that's interesting, but that would mean that the game would favor. We'd see champions of a different body type 
No. Uh, over time. It means that over if, time. if you were to play games in very specific positions, you would see that certain body types have a greater potential to succeed in each position. But body type is not the be-all and end-all. Also, the skill set attached to the body type is very important. No, that's if the, I don't that, know what that, to the do The nice thing about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is that it's good for lots of body types, even in competitions. You have various people winning at various times. Even, even well, this is a long time ago, but in I was in Rio in 2003, and I went to see the Mondiales, mm -hmm. and in the in absolute weight black belts, it wasn't the biggest guys who were winning. No. That was the that was the, the, the most fascinating thing for me to watch was the fact that even in absolute weight, a bunch of guy of different body types were winning and that that was the most I interesting mean, bit took Hodger Gracie years to secure uh, an absolute championship in the Mundials and he was consistently losing to people who were smaller mm -hmm. to the smaller weight categories but you know we, everything we has Mora he's not yeah, a big guy no very little guy and he won I think he won a couple of championships even after leg locking became popular mm -hmm. by the way small small guys game leg attacks many times well, not in 50-50. No, but you don't know what? Don't go into 50-50. That's also not necessarily the case, because if we're in 50-50, and I mean, when we talk about attributes as well, we have many physical attributes, not just the physical shape of your body. You have strength, you have flexibility, you have agility, you have, and then you have mental attributes, and then you have skill level. But do on you a know pure, what to do in 50-50? Yeah, on a pure physical shape level, my advantage over you in 50-50 is that the length of my legs allows me to attack your leg more easily. Mm -hmm. However, the disadvantage of my pure physical composition is that if I wish to disengage from 50-50, it is significantly harder for me to pull myself out of a leg entanglement because you have a much longer lever by which to control me. So if you're trying to, my arms are long, if you're trying to armbar me and my arm is folded, mm -hmm. I have good leverage over my own arm. It's a long lever, so that grip that I have on my opposite arm where I'm folding myself in keeps me very strong. The minute you break it, you're applying far greater force because your grip on my hand is a further distance from, from the, the fulcrum joint, of my yeah. elbow, from the joint. So everything has a, my triangles. I can close triangles left, right, and center on people, but even when I make it tight, it's a bigger space than when that little stocky guy with those tiny legs who struggles to close a triangle, but when he does, your head's going to pop off like a champagne. Oh, that's, a nice, that's a nice point for us to, I think, end on. I, I, I always believed that triangles were just for long-legged guys, and, uh, and actually I was taught that in the beginning. Uh, this is the great Brazilian fantasy. One, one Brazilian black belt uh, recommended to me in the beginning. He said, don't, don't do triangles, focus on our plata, it's much better for you. And then again, when we met Hobson, when he came to give a seminar in Israel, he told me, oh no, it's bullshit, you can just do triangles. Just do them well. I was always told to play guard, play spider guard, play open guard because mm -hmm. you're very tall. Uh, top position is not for you. I can't wrap my head around that as a concept. I, mean, I only do top position. Yeah, yeah. and I'm re relatively tall. Yeah. I recently was in London and met someone who taught me how to properly apply shoulder pressure. And since then, now I like to just have people with my shoulder pressure. <laughs> it's like the, the ultimate top game. It's not a... It's, there's no restriction for your type of body. It's, it's your type of body mixed with your strength attributes, your flexibility, your agility, your mindset, your level of skill, and where you choose to focus your efforts in improving. So it's fun for. Yeah, it's what you termed before. It's a Schrodinger's God. <laughs> <laughs>
the waveform will collapse into some sort of submission in it's, the end. It is neutral until you open up and look inside to see who's got an advantage, but by looking, you give them the advantage. Yeah, yeah. right. So, uh, Josh Mintz, thanks. This was Thank awesome. you guys. Thanks for joining awesome. us. Dan, it's a pleasure as usual. As usual. And for you me, too. Lucas, yeah, this was, uh, it was fun recording this in an apartment and not in a car with no air conditioning. And in English. And in English. Which uh, makes us... Uh, 50 strong audience, I don't know, 12, a dozen strong audience, maybe to 2,000 strong audience. <laughs> yeah. So we'll be really, really interested uh, in hearing any, any comments, any remarks, anything anybody wants to say, write to us, uh, and we'll we try want to, to count answer. the tomatoes that people throw at us. Yeah, if, if lots of people answer, then we'll do more English episodes. If none of you do, then we'll keep on doing them in Hebrew. Yeah, we'll have to go with Plan B and do this uh, bathing suit uh, calendar. It's 2017, like shouting your opinions into the void is, is what everybody does. <laughs> True that. Okay, so, keep it real. Yeah, from us here in Tel Aviv, keep it valid. <laughs> Cheers.